Department of Defense into commercial. Uh, can, can they get into what's called a work program where you can actually take it into the intelligence community and have end users use it and put it to work? So that's it. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. This next guest is, has founded his own investment company, Keegan Capital Management. During his tenure, he spearheaded eight transactions, notably Palantir, Voyager Space Holdings. Prior to KCM, Keegan Capital Management, he was the CEO and Chief Investment Officer for Renoco Capital Management for 11 years, a single-family office based out of Los Angeles. He's also spent seven years at Goldman Sachs in the private wealth management and prime brokerage hedge fund division. He is an expert and has much ex expertise in alternative investing assets, including private equity, venture capital, family office, real estate. He is also success included a successful direct co-investment in SpaceX that has produced an IRR approximately 35% to date. He's also a veteran. He has served for six years as active duty as a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy and ran the command steam uh, steamship and navigation training squadron. He is currently the co-managing partner and CEO at my friend Marlon Spike, the one and only. Please welcome Neil Keegan. How are you doing today, Neil? Hey, doing great. Thanks, Christian. Appreciate the intro. Well, what, me on the show. I appreciate I being on, man, and I'm looking forward to this conversation because one of the biggest things that I think is top of mind for everybody, you guys really focus a lot of your capital deployment in national security, cybersecurity, these things that um, are, are, are very, very obviously forefront uh, for for many, many years now. And I'm curious, Neil, I, I'm seeing this, and I want to get your take on this. We're seeing this beautiful partnership in the private world. Uh, and innovation, as well as the government, kind of aligning in their thesis. We saw that with SpaceX, with the NASA program, and we're seeing this at a very incremental. And you're on the forefront. Neil, I want to talk before we dive into where it's at now. When did that kind of evolve? How did that relationship uh, really make that alignment and seeing both of those players, uh, you know, really focus on the mission, which is national security? So, so how, did that, how did that align for us, or how did that align in in, our, in, our well, how, in terms of the, the broader yeah when when did that occur how did that kind of when, when did that thesis occur where it became this alignment between the private as well as the the government you know it, it's interesting so you know we call this investing dual use investing and the reason we like it is because of that alignment between the the public world and the private world and it's actually fascinating if you, if you go back and look at the history and you think about some of the major innovations that are, you know, ubiquitous today. Think about, you know, the internet, which was actually created by, you know, the predecessor of DARPA. If you think about Siri, you know, voice recognition. If you think about radar, uh, GPS, these were all, you know, military or intelligence uh, community innovations that then became part of the, the commercial fabric. So it's been going on a while, and I think it's really starting to accelerate, which is, which is pretty fascinating. And, and I think in its most recent iteration, I think I have to, you know, give a hats off to Elon Musk and SpaceX for, for taking on a very hard, very challenging problem of, you know, launching into space. And, you know, for years, you know, the government was the, was the leader, was the innovator. And then over time, was just spending so much time and effort and capital that there was an opportunity for the private sector and really a gutsy entrepreneur to step in and do it faster uh, and do it cheaper and do it better. And, uh, and they did that with SpaceX. And I think you're, you're seeing uh, a continuation of that evolution, not only in space, but in, in cyber, in autonomy, in robotics, in AI, in analytics. Uh, and, and these are all the areas where, where we like to invest because, you know, also the, to quote uh, another great one, the actual great one, Gretzky, you know, we like to skate to where the puck is going to be. And, and that's where the, the needs are not only for national security, but in, on the commercial sector. And that's where the capital is flowing. Yeah, and you mentioned a few things here, aerospace, cybersecurity, autonomy, robotics, uh, you know, AI, definitely. That's really, really sexy right now. So, Neil, when you guys uh, at Marlin Spike, when you guys are looking at this, 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 this whole um, foundation, right, how do you navigate it? What does that look like? How are you looking at these companies? Let's unpack that a little bit around your investment thesis and how you guys collaborate uh, again with the government to make those the the, the exped, expedition and expediting that process. Sure, great. Well, what we like to do is we like 
have to start with our thesis. And so right now, you know, like it or not, we feel like the great power competition is certainly on and not abating, right? You've got Russia, which is a very acute threat. You've got China, you've got other adversaries, and these problems are not going away. And so where does the innovation need to happen as a national security and strategic imperative? It's gonna happen in the sectors that we've talked about, data analytics, autonomy, robotics, aerospace, space, cyber. And this is, this is highlighted you know, not only by us, but this is where the capital is flowing for innovation. It also matches the problem sets for, you know, very innovative groups like InQtel, which is the uh, the investment arm of the intelligence community uh, for the large primes such as Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin. They're focused on all these areas as well. And then where we fit in as an investor, you know, we obviously believe in the thesis. We, in our strategy is to go after these particular uh, sectors and then find the most innovative companies with the boldest founders that are solving the hardest problems. And then also investing uh, at various stages of their development. So our specific strategy, you know, the bulk of the strategy called 70% of the capital, we're gonna be focused on series A and series B, you know, venture companies. So these are high growth companies uh, with unbelievable founders that typically have had success you know, before. Uh, they've got product market fit, they've got early revenues, they've got early wins, they've got government contracts, non-dilutive capital, they've got demand signals from the commercial side as well. And that's where we feel like we can come in. Uh, it's really our sweet spot. But we also want to be somewhat opportunistic where we can be a little earlier and we can be a little later. So on the earlier side, you know, we'll, we'll be early in a company, we'll make a, we'll make a smaller uh, capital commitment into proven founders that are doing something a little bit more innovative that are earlier stage, and we'll make a smaller commitment and get to know them and then help them grow. And this is where the, the collaboration comes in. Uh, and then on the later stage companies that, you know, are much further along, you know, potentially closer to uh, an IPO, you know, particularly when the IPO window, uh, the markets open back up again, so we can get, you know, a nice return and liquidity for our investors and also reduce that binary risk of venture. So when you put everything together for us, our strategy is to put together a very thoughtful portfolio that could deliver you know, great risk-adjusted returns in the three to four X you know, type of window. Uh, and lastly, you asked about collaboration. I think this is one of the special things that we do. So as a, as a dual-use fund, you know, we're based here in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm not exactly sure how you would do a dual-use fund unless you've got a presence here or at least a meaningful foothold where you've got access to, you know, the, the pockets of power and influence that really matter for this space. And so I'm talking about the Pentagon, I'm talking about DARPA, I'm talking about each uh, branch of the service uh, with their innovation units like Naval X. Um, they're all here and we've got very, very uh, close ties to them. Uh, in addition to InQtel, you know, one of our partners actually was at the CIA and ran the interface with InQtel for over five years. So we have a very in-depth knowledge of you know, how these groups uh, operate and, and how it's important for our portfolio companies to then get engaged with these different groups to get that buy-in and that collaboration. So this is very interesting. We Let's dive into a little bit of this here in regards to your investment thesis. And I think Palantir did an excellent job in regards to, you know, the most recent example where there was this macro company in the you know private world, uh, but also obviously served the government as well, which I found very interesting. Neil, I want to ask, when you're looking at, you know, cyber, AI, autonomy, robotics, you know, all these different, you know, space even, all these different verticals, is there a, uh, is it, you know, is it, 20% in each one? Is it 25% in each one? Is it 10% in each one that you allocate and deploy capital? Or is it really more of a case-by-case -case basis and saying, hey, you know what? What's the macro situation? What's the market cap? What's the big pain in the situation? And is this company, can it solve that pain? How do you guys, what is your methodology, your principles, how you look at it, not just on the founder basis of, okay, this company, but also the, the go-to-market strategy and saying, okay, well, this is where it's going. And we want to deploy a lot of capital in AI because we see, like you mentioned, you know, uh, where the puck is going in regards to, you know, you want to skate to where that's going. How do you guys at a macro level look at that? And that helps your methodology in deploying capital. No, that's, that's a great question. And it really highlights the framework. So we've got our five sectors and we know we want to deploy capital in those five sectors. We know we want to be. 70% in Series A and Series B companies because we think they're going to drive the returns uh, of, the, of the portfolio. 
You want to have some later stage companies because that brings down the risk, but also hopefully shortens the J curve so we can get some, some good early wins and deliver stock to our investors. And then we also want to be early and we want to, we want to back folks early so we can take a small position and then plus them up and be helpful as they continue to grow. And then in many cases, these earlier companies, we can feed into our ecosystem to our, to our later stage company. So that's important. I mean, in the ideal world, we would have about, you know, when it's all said and done, if we've got 15 or 20 portfolio companies in the fund after the investment period, we would have about 20% in each. So that's, that's really kind of our target. And if you look at where we are now, we launched our fund uh, in January of last year. Uh, we've, we've got capital commitments. We've been calling down capital. We've been investing the fund. And we've got seven investments. And it's really a representative portfolio. We've got core positions in A and B. We've got one late stage, and we've got a few early stage, and we've got all five of our of our sectors covered. And so every year we're trying to then refresh. So we're, we're filling in the portfolio buckets in a in a smart, methodical way, and also calling down capital in a smart, methodical way. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but I'm sure you know you and uh, other other listeners have been you know investors for a long time and have been limited partners in other funds and where. You, know, you meet a great team, you got a great strategy, and let's say it's 2006 and it's real estate, and you, you make a commitment and that team is supposed to invest capital over, over three or four years, and then they call all the capital and they put it all to work. And then next thing you know, you're stuck with a 2006 vintage real estate fund with all the capital put to work. Then the world blows up in 07 and 08, which would, which would have been a great time to put money to work, but they've already you know put all the capital to work. We're very systematic about calling our capital. And we think 2022 and 2023 uh, and 24 are going to be great vintage years to deploy capital because you never really know, you know, when that when that bottom of the market is going to happen. So we're just trying to be very thoughtful and methodical about, you know, steadily deploying capital over this period of time as well. Where are we at in those different categories thus far, just at a macro level? Because I think, one, I think it's good to start there for our audience because, again, we're probably very not very familiar with, okay, the importance of this, cybersecurity, you know, defending our nation and so forth in these circumstances and in these different verticals. But also, are we lacking compared to, you know, obviously China and, and, and these other nations uh, that we have to defend? Um do, do we see that there is a little bit of lacking in regards to, you know, innovation and, you know, really um, innovative thought, you know, processes and systems and stuff like that, technology and so forth? Where are we at on that scale compared to, you know, macro, you know, uh, nations and so forth? So, again, great question. And, you know, personally, and, and I think our firm view is that, you know, the United States and, and all the effort over, over many, many years of, of building this, you know, defense industrial base uh, has been very strong. I think we are at an inflection point where if we don't continue to invest and continue to invest smartly and continue to add resources in, the, in these growing areas, you know, we're at risk of, of falling behind. Uh, our, our peers and near peers have, you know, frankly, really caught up to us. I, I'm not going to say ahead. But I, I think that they've caught up to us in many respects. And part of that is just driven by, frankly, you know, the last 20 years, uh, we, we've been f focused on, you know, and, you know, you could argue rightly so or wrongly so, the, the global war on terror, which involves a, a, just a different sort of, um, of effort, right? And I think now as, as that's really, um, you know, winding down for the most part and uh, the threat of, of China and obviously what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, which is really a, a dual-use war, playing out right in front of us, uh, sadly, the, the realization that we, we need to, the, the next war is going to be different and the, the tools used are going to be different and we need to be ready for that. And hopefully, you know, our hope is that that war doesn't come, that that's not what we want, it's not what we're hoping for, and that our best defense is being prepared so we can make the other side, you know, think twice about taking aggressive action, make them think twice about uh, engaging us because you know, hopefully it'll be a, a losing or an extremely painful proposition. Um, so that, that's kind of how we're thinking about it.
Well, I'm, I'm glad we, we stopped on this because that's one of the things I wanted to highlight because I don't think we understand there's always – it's a race, right? And, and we have to win, and we have to – obviously, that's why it's so important what you guys are doing at Marlin Spike to be able to invest into these these founders and go to market and actually help this because then they integrate it into these these other government agencies that then obviously help, uh, you know, holistic. I actually found it very interesting, the importance of cybersecurity, right? Like you mentioned, there's certain things that the war is drastically different than just as physical anymore. It's now very uh, cyber-like. Obviously, we talked other things. I want to talk now um, and pivot, Neil, a little bit toward your, your, your companies you've already invested into, Elroy Air, um, you know, and I'm going to butcher some of these, Cambrium, as well as Voyager Space. This, these portfolio companies you've invested in, um, what did you see in them? What were the what? How did you guys come align and help them and and really go to market and uh, you know what what, what was, share a few stories? I, I'd love to understand a little bit about how you guys really take a point guard on that. Yeah, you bet, you bet. And um, and actually, before I do, if I may, can I go back and make one point on the last uh, the last little vignette we were talking about? Uh, and I'll have I, I started reading a, a pretty interesting book by uh, Andrew Krepinevich, and it's it's called the the Origins of Victory. And it's fascinating because he goes back and he looks through all the different uh, innovation cycles for military technology. And the last one he calls um, the precision precision warfare, effectively. So if you go back and think about the first Gulf War in the early 90s, you know, we really had the lead in these precision-guided, you know, munitions. And, and we had that lead and, and we kept it for, for a long time. And now we've allowed folks to, to catch up. And so what you will see if you go back through history, there's always the, the country that takes the lead and takes the initiative in something new, tends to hold that for a period of time, and then everyone else catches up. And if you don't go on to the next thing, and the next thing is, you know, cyber warfare, it's space. It, this is the next, these are the next battlegrounds. And you've got to be there. and You've got to be ahead to keep that gap. And again, the, the longer you have that gap and those capabilities, hopefully, the longer you can forestall having to use those capabilities in a, in a dynamic um, or a kinetic environment. Uh, so just wanted to make that point. Um, so I have a good idea to pivot the companies. I, I Since you mentioned Elroy first, why don't we talk about that one? Because I think it also highlights the, the nature of dual use. I mean, we've talked a lot about national security and, and, and why we need you know the, these certain tools uh, in, in a theater of potential warfare. But what's, what we really find fascinating and which really drives the investment case are, are these, you know, unique companies that are doing things not only for national security, but also commercially. So Elroy Air, fascinating company. Uh, they are, it's a cargo drone. So you think about uh, a, fly, a vertical takeoff and landing drone that can fly uh, 300 miles with a 500 pound payload, which is really going after the middle mile, right? So think about... Uh, fulfillment center to fulfillment center. Think about the next time you're you're on the 405, if you're going from LA to Orange County, or if you're uh, in, in the DC area trying to get to New York, going up 95. You look to your right, look to your left. You've got FedEx trucks and Amazon trucks, and it's just it's a traffic jam, right? So this drone can be can get anything anywhere five times faster. So we know you know speed kills, right? Speed is your speed is your friend in this in this world. And as anybody who's ever shopped on Amazon, which is probably everybody, if you can't get it like that day or the next day, you're on to the next thing. So you need, you need this. So this company is fascinating. They've got over $3 billion of, of back orders in the form of master purchase agreements, letters, um, letters of intent and actual orders. I mean, they're actually taking deposits and they're getting ready to fly the second uh, prototype this quarter. Um, They've got inroads with, with the military. And so, again, perfect dual use in that they're going to start flying and operating with uh, different parts of the Department of Defense to build up time on the wing. And then ultimately, once they start getting into, you know, larger rates of production, then they'll be selling into the commercial market. And they've got announced partnerships with groups like FedEx, with CBS Health, Raven Alaska, uh, the Bristow Group. Unbelievable group of investors that, that have invested alongside us. So this is one we're really excited about. And they've got a top-notch management team uh, and Dave, uh, Dave Merrill, the CEO. So let's – I'm curious on this because you mentioned a few things where 
where when you're investing in these companies, some of these in, uh, companies are backed, you know, funded fine. But I'm curious, just like VR, where sometimes the technology, the vision is here, but the technology has to catch up to the vision, if you will. And before it obviously goes to market. So it's not like the money is the problem. They are backed. They are funded. They have incredible opportunity. But it's that technology that has that, that gap, like you were mentioning, in regards to that technology that has to be evolved or established. Do you feel like where, – where is that in regards to your time horizon when you're deploying capital into these companies? You say, hey, I anticipate a little longer time horizon because the technology may not be there. That's why we have to infuse a lot in R&D, structuring that out, infrastructure, et cetera. Do you anticipate that in, in regards to your investment thesis as well? How do you look at that, Neil? I love, love that question. And so what we like to do is we try to, to burn down as much – uh, technology or engineering risk as possible before we make the investment. So going back to, to Elroy, this is a company, and one of the reasons we, we love the company is it really brought the whole team together. My co-managing partner, Mislav Tulusik, he's been investing in this space uh, for almost 15 years as, as chief investment officer for a big you know, multifamily office in their, their venture sleeve. And that's why I thought he'd be an ideal partner because he's very, very deep in this space. Whereas with my background, you know, having run a family office and spent time at Goldman is much more of a generalist portfolio manager. Um, but Mislav is very, very uh, adept in, in this in this world and said, you know, a couple of years ago, hey, you got to be talking to, to Elroy because um, we know them really well. And I think they can be a good fit for what, you know, Mom Spike is doing. And, and before we launched the fund, we did a number of, you know, direct deals and, and SPVs. And then Chip Walter, our other partner, and he was at Northrop Grumman running their venture program, and they were uh, taking a look at Elroy. So, between the three of us, even though we weren't working together under, you know, one brand, you know, we were collaborative about, let's assess the technical risk. You know, Chip was, uh, you know, had, had a bench of 40,000 engineers at Northrop Grumman that could understand this thing. And, and this is, uh, they had already flown their prototype, their full-scale prototypes. So we felt like, okay, this team has, has flown the prototype. Then it just becomes more of an engineering project to iterate and make it better, stronger, safer, faster. And with capital and the right team, typically you can do that. And so then as we, we invested pre-fund and then they continue to hit milestones, that's where we added um, into our added them into our fund. I love that, and I appreciate really unpacking that. So you did obviously invest a little bit in the pre uh, pre uh, pre rev situation, but then obviously as they hit those those pillars, those those uh, hurdles, then obviously you deployed more capital, which then it kind of you know had that compound effect, which is really awesome. When when you're looking at that go to market strategy, um, do you? How do you guys approach that in coming alongside your companies, your portfolio companies, and helping them kind of go to market? Um, is that more that larger enterprise? Is it SMBs? What is that approach? Obviously, I would imagine it's very contextual, depending upon, obviously, the product, the service, you know, et cetera, the pain points, the market cap, et cetera. There's a lot of factors that go into it, but how do you, how do you approach that um, with your companies? No, that's great. And I think that's one of the reasons that, we get up every day. You know, we want to invest in really innovative companies that are doing difficult things with, with great founders. And then how do we help them? Like a big part of the lift is on the, on the front end. I mean, last year we reviewed over 500 opportunities and we invested in five. And this year we're, we're already, you know, beyond that pace in terms of looking at opportunities and making investments. Um, so, but we won't make an investment unless we really think we can help them grow. You know, one example is a company called Render AI. Uh, they're a synthetic data company. So when we screened, um, you know, AI, machine learning, data analytics, we thought, you know, what's really interesting? What's growing? Where, where, where are the gaps? Uh, and who were, you know, some of the best companies out there? So we, we found this company and we got to know the, the leadership. Um, and then we started doing things uh, to introduce them to people in our, in our ecosystem. You know, large public companies, a large public railway company that uses a lot of data. Uh, and they're like, why, why would we meet a railway company? We're like, well, this particular railway company, they've got the second largest drone fleet behind the U.S. Air Force. I'm like, huh, didn't think about that. And then if you think about it, you're like, wait a minute, that makes a lot of sense for a railway company to have drones to monitor rails, to monitor their, their cars uh, for, for safety and for efficiency. And so then with the, the addition of synthetic data, 
they can become much more efficient in, in how they how they track their, their products. Um, so we kind of do that over and over again with our companies, then introducing them into our ecosystem, and then we get to see you know how they operate, uh, how they work with new companies, how they pitch, how they price, commercial viability, and then we do the same thing on the uh, for the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. Uh, this particular company we took into DARPA, and you know DARPA is a fascinating uh, organization. They've got a forty billion dollar a year, and this is all public, forty billion dollar a year budget. And they like to call it DARPA hard. They're going after the, the, the most difficult, challenging problems out there. And they're looking, they're trying to look 15, 20 years out, like what do we need? And again, this is the group that came up with the internet, that came up with Siri. Um, I mean, this is a really innovative, I mean, this is some of the best and brightest that, that the country has. And so we introduced our companies that are doing innovative things to them. And they're like, huh, this is fantastic. We love it. Let's get it involved. Let's get let's get working with them and let's see how we can integrate them into some of our other projects. And, and our companies our companies love it. So thankfully, you know, we're, we're becoming um, somewhat of a, of a of a brand where the, now the founders of these companies are, are saying to their other buddies that are founders that are you know also rolling out of innovative companies like Palantir or Andrew or SpaceX and creating their own uh, their own companies. Like hey, you got to talk to these Marlin Spike guys. And so we're we're getting a lot of good at bats. And, good introductions with new and innovative companies and bold founders. That's what I find so interesting about your platform. It's not just a matter of infusing capital with that founder. It's also saying, hey, we have this amazing Rolodex, deep connections with the government that can obviously bridge that gap. Let me ask you then, do you guys invest into companies knowing, you know, the Pentagon or the CIA or, you know, these agencies you have deep connections with that, hey, this is going to be really a good partnership. We got to get it here to be able to get them, you know, that, that, that integration and so forth. Do you structure it that way as well when you're looking at some of these companies or is it more of like, hey, let's go and invest in this. If it works, if there's alignment, cool. Um, I, I'd love to see how you navigate those relationships. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a great way to think about it. And. We do think about that as part of the diligence process. So we'll do a lot of back channel checks with some of the groups that I had mentioned to see, you know, is it, are they solving a problem? What is the use case? Can it, can it scale beyond intelligence community or Department of Defense into commercial? Or can, can they get into what's called a work program where you can actually take it into the intelligence community and have end users use it and put it to work? So that's a, that's a big part of what we do up front. And then, you know, once we get, once things start to check out, and, and it's a laundry list, right? Are they solving the problem? Is the team great? Um, does it work? Uh, is there a need value? And then you get into all the financial metrics, you know, how are we going to make money? What's our entry point? What's the revenue profile look like? All of that. And then, you know, we wire the funds. And that, that's where the work really begins because we, we want to help them succeed. And it's not just a quick email introduction. Oh, go talk to this guy. We literally go with them. I mean, shit, my partner was just with one of our companies briefing at the Pentagon last week, takes them into DARPA. We're, we're frequently uh, partnering with Inkytel. We'll co-invest with them as well. And, uh, we were actually just in London last week, and we sat down with the team there, and we literally were trading notes on, on interesting companies that, that we've talked to. So I, I think our access is, is very strong, and it's an important part of, of what we do and how we do it. When you're, and you mentioned some of the, the, the brightest minds, where are we at with the retention? Because obviously, again, not only are we talking about the software, the technology in regards to all these vertical space and aerospace as well as cybersecurity and AI, but also you have to have the talent to be able to, you know, uh, and the team to obviously really scale that, not just talking about a unicorn status company. You're talking national security. That's why I want to make, you know, have this this conversation. That's why I think your guys' platform at Marlin Spark is so incredible, integration. So my question is, when you're building out the team and recruiting amazing talent, where where is the U.S. at regarding other, you know, uh, macro, you know, uh, against other nations in regards to talent acquisition. I feel like we have some good talent, definitely software engineers and AI experts and all these individuals, but I want to get your perspective. What are you noticing in regards to when you're when you're infusing capital and these founders and really helping them build out their team? Sure. Uh, you know, talent talent's everything. And I think fortunately we have a lot of talent in the intelligence community. We have a tremendous amount of talent in the DOD. There, there's a huge focus to, you know, put more capital into these, these areas of, uh, of influence. And then on the private side, I know we'll spend a little bit more time there. 
uh, it's really fascinating in that over the last 20 years, and it's really accelerated probably more in the last five years or so, uh, more engineering talent has gone into these these companies. I mean, look at a company like Anvil. I mean, they're barely five years old, and that's a north of $8 billion valuation company. I mean, these guys are on fire, and um, I'd encourage anyone to, to listen to podcasts on them and what they're doing. Super innovative, super hungry. They're, they're delivering products. Like, for example, they, they bought a company called uh, Dive Technologies, and this, this is public, uh, which is a submersible. And they want a contract with Australia, a $100 million contract to deliver it. And they delivered it three months early. I mean, that never happens, right? And the other thing, going back to your comment about talent, is that they're just sucking up all these, all these great minds and these great engineers because what they're doing, which is so different than the, the classic defense prime model, they are, they are saying, here's a problem. We're going to solve it. We're going to take our own capital and our own people and we're going to figure it out. We'll get a minimum viable product, whether it's a drone, whether it's border security, and then we're going to show up on the door of the end user and say, here it is. It works. Try it out. What do you think? And they're like, oh my God, I love it. I need it. I'll buy it. Okay, great. So then they iterate, they make it better. And next thing you know, they're getting billion dollar contracts and they keep doing it over and over again. And so think about it. If you're an engineer and you're working at, you know, think of your, your, your classic Silicon Valley, you know, tech firm. You've been there for a while. You've probably done it right, made some, made some money. Maybe you're getting a little bit bored. And here's this high-flying, you know, basically startup. And when they say, hey, come join us. You get to work on cool stuff. We'll give you a lot of room to run. Just go get it. And then we're going to execute. And you're going to see what you've created in the field of making an impact. So that's a winning formula. And, and we're seeing that not only with the Andrews of the world, but all the way down to, you know, startups that are, you know, innovative people that have, that have done well at your Andrews and your SpaceX and your Palantirs. Um, and then they're starting their own companies because they, they find these niches and they just go after it and exploit it. So it's, it's a very exciting time, I think, for the whole, you know, dual use world. What, and speaking of exciting, which vertical, Neil, are you most excited about in regards to like aerospace, cybersecurity, AI? I would imagine it's almost like asking someone what's your favorite ice cream. Like, you know, you love all the ice cream, right? But it's, you got to figure out which one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, or maybe yeah. better, better question is which one. I, I, yeah, go, go ahead, Neil. I'd love to, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to get your response on that, yeah. So. Look, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably say, you know, personally, space, because um, I just, I'm totally fascinated by it. I'm a little bit of a, a space geek nerd. Uh, I love the the thought of uh, expansion, exploration, um, just just how hard it is and how difficult it is and just how, you know, the, the guts it takes to, to do some of these things. Um, so I, I think it's part of what makes, you know, humanity great is just the desire to explore and to, and to push boundaries. And I love that we're we're in the middle of it. You know, one of our companies, Voyager Space Holdings, so it's, it's a great company, and their their mantra is to go out and buy companies that are already operating in space, generating revenue. It's an infrastructure company, so think about robotic arms and airlocks and uh, hypersonic you know, propulsion control systems. I mean, these are the nuts and bolts of the space infrastructure. And if you don't have that, and they want a big contract to build the next private space station. And if you, if you don't have the private sector stepping in and innovating, you know, like the SpaceX's, like the Blue Origins, like the Voyagers, then how are we going to get to the moon? And if we can't get to the moon, how are we going to get to Mars and then beyond there? So we got to keep pushing. So that, you know, personally is, uh, is a very uh, passionate uh, vertical for me. When you're when you're looking at kind of building out, and I think Jeff Bezos talks about this, where it's like the reason why you got Mark Zuckerberg be able to build Facebook in his in his dorm room is because the Internet Foundation was there, so they could you know, that scale was a lot easier. But that's the same way that he was talking about, and I think Elon Musk as well talked about how the infrastructure space is not there, so that's what they're building, so that there can be those other innovators in the future, fifty, a hundred years from now, that can just build upon what's already been established. 
where are we at, Neil, and specifically talking about space um, in regards to the structure of it? Like, where do you think we're at? Do we have a, a built foundation now because of the private and as well as the public kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, beautiful alignment? Or are we still kind of really at the early stages, almost like pre-1993, 1995, kind of in, in regards to the Internet yeah, capacity know, it's, it's, mindset? Yeah, it's fascinating if you think about it because who, who has more – space experience it, it it's you it's the u.s government i mean look we've been we've been at this for a long time really since the late you know 1950s so it's it we've been at it for a while so we've got a lot of muscle memory there and i think what's been fascinating is the the entrance of the private sector and i think really the last decade was really the decade of launch getting to space reliably and efficiently and and, and again hats off to, to spacex for really pushing that so we've got a reliable way to get our astronauts and our material and our satellites to space. So that, that was really, I think, a, a huge tipping point for space. I think the next one um, is really going to be the decade of, of space infrastructure, where you've got the International Space Station, which is uh, out. It, it's prolonged. Um, it's on a prolonged lifespan, scheduled to come down at the end of the decade. What we, what we are going to have. Uh, is a is a series of, of outposts. Frankly, these are going to be privately owned, privately operated, where, where NASA or European Space Agency or other you know sovereign nations will be the customer, right? So you know, hopefully, Voyager will be one uh, of a handful of groups that are that have these private space stations, and up there you can have um, you know, your astronauts there. You can do scientific research, and I, I like how you brought up you know the internet. In many cases, I think we're getting to that point where space is a little bit like the Internet in 1994. We're, we're probably not there, but we're getting pretty close. Well, you don't exactly know where it's going to go, but you know it's going to be big. Uh, I think Bank of America expects that it's going to be a trillion-dollar economy by, by the end of the decade. And, and they might be wrong because it might be more. So I think that's kind of where we are and a little bit of where we're going. And then once once we start getting up there uh, into these space commercial uh, probably, you know, space stations. And then from there, I think to the moon and then, and then beyond. So let's kind of dive back into your own journey and your story. You know, obviously you came from Navy and you ran your own family office and you were one of the early investors in, in SpaceX. And I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up. And let me ask you like, where, where did the passion of, of this this beautiful alignment and your investment thesis and you know what Marlin Spike as well as just you know being able to see this you know national security and cybersecurity and the importance of AI where uh, where did that passion you know come from? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, it has been quite a journey. Uh, so I think it probably started with you know growing up here in the, in the DC area. Uh, I went to the Naval Academy for for my undergrad. I served uh, in the Navy for six years on. On active duty, I was on I was on ships and was fortunate to be stationed around the world. Um, and, and then after uh, after I came back, went to grad school. I was with uh, you know Goldman for a number of years, so got my, my first taste of, of finance and then investing, uh, running a family office. But I think I was continually driven towards ultimately having uh, capital to put to work and then starting my own firm. But I always I've always been kind of a team guy too. I played lacrosse in college and. You know, enjoyed working with other people and felt like it would be really exciting to work with great partners like I have now that have similar DNA, similar mindset, similar hustle, but different skill sets, right? So you, the, the team is stronger than, than any one person or any one vision. And so it all kind of convalesced around, around Marlin Spike and this, this mission and this passion for national security, but also investing, right? Because I, I love the I love the asymmetry of it, where we're, we're finding these really unique companies with these unbelievably talented founders solving hard problems, using technology, uh, making a difference, making an impact. But also with this, with the dual use piece, with all those previous factors, generating revenue, getting grants, getting non-dilutive capital um, from the government. Uh, and then once they crack that code and move into the commercial side, it really opens up, you know, huge, huge commercial upside. And that's where the scalability comes in and frankly, where the investment upside comes in. So I thought that combination 
uh, was a winning combination to really build a firm around that investment strategy. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. It was just an evolution in the journey and, you know, where you really focusing on that investment thesis as well. And it came almost this alignment of, hey, you know what, uh, I love space exploration and, and cybersecurity and AI as well as investing and bringing it together. And that's why I think it's just so cool what you guys have been able to build and establish and the importance of both. I want to dive in, and, and this is what I always found unique, if you will, is when you're looking at these these go-to-market, okay, and the time horizon of these companies, you mentioned a lot of R&D and really establishing, and it's very capital-intensive to develop some of these, right, these, these, these ideas and so forth, whether it's an AI, whether it's space, whatever it may be. So because of that, and I know you obviously mentioned you do some pre-rev, deploy some capital, but mostly focus on that Series A, Series B, which makes perfect sense. But do you anticipate that the time horizon is a little longer because of that uh, thesis, because it's more capital intensive and go to market uh, may take a little longer, but it's more of like a 10, maybe 12 year timeline compared to uh, what normal VCs like to kind of hit, which is like five to seven and then kind of have an exit. Um, how do you guys approach it? Yeah, well, as, as an as an exit, as an exit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think if you if you break down to the, the three buckets, right? You've got the the seed. I mean, obviously these companies are are going to take longer to really fully mature. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that they might not get bought out along the way. They're probably the, the most likely uh, acquisition candidates along the way. Or you know you might get lucky and, and get you know a SpaceX or a Palantir. And those companies were you know they've been twenty years in the making, right? So it, it can take a long time for these very innovative companies. I do think that that time period is shorting, is shortening like Andrew, for example. Um, I think they're going on year five and they're already, you know, eight and a half billion dollar company. So kind of incredible how, how fast, you know, that they've grown. So I do think the cycles are going to, are going to, are going to shorten uh, the A and B companies. You know, we think some of our companies, you know, could get a nice exit within kind of five-ish years. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, when the markets open back up and we kind of get back, um, you know, kind of get back to not even half of where we were a couple of years ago. You know, I think there's going to be a market for kind of our A and B companies uh, to potentially go public or again um, as an acquisition. You know, our later stage companies, you know, we, we specifically like to put them in uh, our portfolio, A, because we like the fact that it removes a lot of the binary risk of uh, a venture. We don't think our later stage companies are, are going down or, you know, something, you know, tragically wrong would have to happen for, for one of these companies to, to go to zero. And we think the odds of uh, either a public exit or an exit on the secondary market are much more likely in a shorter time period, call it that three to five year window. So when we put that all together, you know, we're trying to, you know, get the bulk of our returns out in about five years, which is, which is shorter than usual. And our, and our fund is effectively a 10 year fund. Uh, and then the last thing I'll comment is that you know, having been an LP and having been in funds, and I'm still in funds that are 15 years old. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, you know, they've taken companies public and then they sit on the stock. I'm like, just return the stock. Come on, you did a good job. Or they've got companies that are basically, you know, dead men walking. I'm like, just go blow it out. Sell it to a secondary shop. Return the cash. Call it a day. So I think our, our mentality is like, if we, if we can't get you a good return, and, and all of our money's in this thing too. I mean, so we're totally aligned to put up great returns and return either cash or stock, then, you know, we're just not doing our jobs. Well, I'm glad we're talking about this because obviously investors, you know, yes, they, they can be in it for the vision and the passion, like the ESG and the impact world, but also it's at the end of the day, they also want to say, well, what's the liquidity event? What's that look like? What's the strategy? When When is that exit? You know, I'm, I'm getting old, right? <laughs> it's 20 years. I want, I want to take an exit yeah. and enjoy life, you know? <laughs> so... So I'm glad you kind of explained what, what your guys' thesis said in regards, hey, there, there is this, you know, very strategic approach. There is this time horizon. It is collapsing uh, in, in a good way. Uh, so obviously the exits are a lot faster and so forth. Uh, the reason why I brought that up is because I noticed in ESG and Impact, I've had some investors on and they talk about this long time horizon because of just that, that, that kind of, you know, investment thesis. But obviously this is just, there's been a lot of tailwind behind this industry. That's why I was so excited about having you on and talking about the excitement, but also kind of where we're at. 
it is an, a constant competition uh, depending upon who you know is 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 in charge of the space and who you know uh, who we're going to let you know in charge of all this conversation and so forth. And obviously, there are certain threats that we have to be aware of. We're seeing that on on a day to day basis. And uh, you know, obviously, you guys are deploying a lot of capital and and infusing a lot of capital into these founders, but also these founders that have this beautiful alignment with the government that really help us at all levels. Uh, things that you know most of us we probably don't see and probably you can't you know say too much of because <laughs> us sworn to secrecy and so forth. But uh, I want to ask you. Well, that's what I see. So let me ask you, okay, before I let you go, Neil, and I really appreciate you being on here. Neil, um, we, we talked a lot about your investment thesis, the excitement, the founding, as well as the talent acquisition and where we're at and, and you know, how you guys look at these, 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 um, these individuals. Because you guys focus on the Series A and Series B, I would imagine, because life is never simple, there are certain non-winners. Right. And so I'm always curious how how Marlon Spike, how you guys approach those non winners. Are you able to isolate those pretty quickly and say, OK, this isn't going anywhere? The non yeah, the non winners, the losers, basically, is what I'm basically saying. The ones that don't you know, make it to the next hurdle and you say, OK, you know what? We're going to have to kind of I'll help you, but we're going to have to pull some chips off the table and reallocate them toward the winners. Right. And that's just that, you know tough conversation. So how do you guys approach that? How do you guys identify those red flags? What does that look like? Because you guys are in the Series A and Series B. You guys basically mitigate that loss pretty quickly right on the front end. But I just want to ask you, there, there are probably certain yeah. circumstances that, that have to have those conversations. Agreed. And this, this goes down to our process. And I think I mentioned last year, we looked at 500 opportunities and we, we try to, we try to quickly get through things that we could, we think are a fit. So we're very process driven. Every Every Tuesday, we have an investment meeting where we say, you know, what's 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 come in, and you know, are we going to spend time on it or not? So the first filter is: is it a strategy fit? Uh, is it a sector fit? Um, is the is there evaluation um, opportunity where it makes sense to come in? Uh, a lot of times, things get get killed immediately because of the management team. Uh, there, there's something kind of sketchy that comes up in open source or. Uh, they, they tell us one thing and then we do a quick back channel and it's not necessarily the case. Like if they say they're making progress in a, in a certain pocket of the DOD, uh, an innovation group, and we call, we pick up the phone and call them like, these guys are nowhere. Like we looked at them and it's like, they're dead in the water. So there are certain things that just automatically knock things out. And then we get to the point where we're like, okay, th this is interesting. We, we like this team. We like what they're doing. Uh, there's other, you know, smart cap table investors. Maybe uh, Inkytel has spent time with them. Uh, we, we think we can burn down the technical risk. Then we'll write a couple page memo and then we'll typically, you know, bring it to our investment group and then say, are we going to spend even more time on it or not? Because, you know, time is a precious commodity. So this is a filtering process. And then if it continues to move forward, you know, we'll typically we'll meet with the team, maybe a couple meetings, either in person on Zoom. Generally, we always meet in person before we ultimately write a check. And it's just that narrowing process, right? We've got to have all of our factors that have got to line up for us to make uh, make an investment. But it's it's a tight it's a tight funnel, five hundred to five. So that just tells you right there about one percent of what what comes across the transom or what we go hunting for actually makes it into the portfolio. And that filter was that an evolution, or did you guys start out pretty heavy on the front end, uh, or did you kind of add more filtering process to it as as your company has evolved and, and expanded? So it actually it goes back to the evolution question, and part of the reason we we launched the fund is that we were just seeing so many great opportunities. So it was the confluence of this this need, you know, strategic imperative. The, the capital flowing into all these five sectors and, you know, innovators and entrepreneurs just you know, having the guts to go out and start these great companies and getting traction, you know, making progress and the market being open to the Palantirs and the Andrews and the Shield AIs of the world. And we're like, there's so much to do here and there's, there's so much room to run. This is such a, a big space and there's huge gaps that are undercapitalized. We got to do this. Like, there's a huge gap, and, and we can we can fill it, and we can help, and we can, in our way, make an impact. So that was part of what drew us to, you know, really starting the fund and putting it all on the line. 
Awesome. Awesome. This is so exciting. Neil, again, I just appreciate you being on here. Uh, just you're passionate about this, but this is just uh, amazing, uh, amazing forefront. You guys are running point guard on this, this, this amazing industry that is very, very important for the government, but also our personal lives as well. And I love what you guys are doing, deploying a lot of capital and working with these founders uh, and building up your Rolodex and, and having that conversation. And like I mentioned, that beautiful alignment, which is awesome. For those, you are doing some really exciting stuff. For those that want to deploy some capital that are looking to maybe you know leverage and, and align with your thesis as well, that like what they have heard today, Neil, I know you've got some really kind of exciting news. Um, how do they reach out to you? How do they be part of what you got going on, Neil? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, well, we're on LinkedIn. Spike, you can send me an email, Neil at MarlinSpike.us. Uh, so hit me either way, or they can get a hold of you, and you, you've got my email and info, and just uh, loop me in. Um, love to meet new people, love to meet like minded investors, uh, love to get the word out on, on what we're doing. And, you know, we're, we're here to, to make an impact and also to, uh, to make some money. Awesome. And guys, those links are in the description below. I would highly recommend reaching out, looking at his website as well as LinkedIn. They get a lot of that content out there, specifically on their website, be able to see their portfolio and some of the other founders that they've worked very closely with uh, and some of the results. Um, Neil, again, I really appreciate you being on here big time. Uh, for those, uh, and I always love to ask this question before I let you go. You've obviously done very well for yourself, right? You are co-managing and founder and CEO of Marlins Pike, and, and you've done very well. But if you could think about that young Neil that was just maybe right out of college, right out of uh, uh, the Naval Academy, and you had to look at yourself now, what insecurities did you have to overcome to become the person that you are now, Neil? Well, uh, hmm. So I would say that when I, when I look back, and so like when I started at, at Goldman Sachs, I was sitting across the table from you know, these, these hedge fund entrepreneurs. This is in the early 2000s. And I kept thinking to myself, one day I want to be on that side of the table. And it, it took me 20 years to basically get there. So I, I probably could have uh, you know, shortened, the, shortened the duration there. But when I look back, I, I learned a lot of great skills along the way to to put me in the seat to credibly you know lead the team and and put capital to work and be in a position to be able to do it um i think telling my my younger self i would i would probably say get the requisite skills earlier and and move faster just move faster well said. Well said. Acquire those skills and move faster. Very well said and timely, timely, timely wisdom. You don't have to get, you don't have to get 100%. I mean, try to get 70, 80% of the way there and then move to the next thing and continue to learn, iterate. Be, it's okay to fail. Just keep, just keep moving and keep moving up and keep going towards your ultimate goal. And you might not know what that ultimate goal is. And it doesn't have to be perfectly crystallized. Like 20 years ago, I couldn't have said, I want to start this firm called Marlon Spike and invest in dual use. No way. Some people might have that kind of insight. I didn't. I just knew that ultimately I wanted to run my own firm, put my own capital work, have great partners, and, and invest in things that I believed in. And so that was really my guiding principle to get me here. And I'm very fortunate that is where I am with the partners I have. That's awesome. That's amazing insight. And just like you said, it's an evolution and a journey for yourself. You don't know exactly the, the vision and what that looks like sometimes, but you just go with the path. And that's awesome. And obviously, it's been able to produce incredible fruit. <laughs> you got to, as my father likes to say, you got you to jump and hope that the net will open. <laughs> Well said. Guys, that is the co-managing partner and CEO at Marlins Pike, my friend, Neil Keegan. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Evans podcast. Until next time, you, be uncommon if you can. Thanks, Neil. Cheers.